0: Well, good evening everybody it's good to see you thanks for uh, being a part of the wednesday night service Uh, we are so excited to be here tonight i'm pastor scott and i have the privilege of being involved with our annual business meeting which part of that every year is uh, having deacons being nominated and uh, elected into office a three-year term and so we have three nominees that are up on stage and we always like to be able to make a public introduction to our church congregation so that you can see who they are uh, if you do want more information, you can flip over your program tonight, and you'll see information on the, the business meeting this weekend on Sunday night. And then also in the back at guest services there, you'll find the uh, bios on each of these candidates. And uh, pick, I encourage you to go pick one of those up and uh, take a look at that. We have two positions that are open, and, uh, and so we have three candidates, and so they have prayerfully considered saying yes. The way it works is we are a pastoral-led church, uh, but we're deacon team advised and held accountable financially by our deacon board. And uh, they have been nominated by many of you, but then people in our congregation. And uh, they have accepted the position to be able to be nominated. And so I wanted to introduce them to you tonight. So we're going to do that and then pray for them and then let you enjoy the rest of the service. But Right here on my left is Roger Hageman and his wife Peggy. And they are here tonight as well, but Roger is our nominee. And then Renee and uh, Clark Miller. And uh, Clark is our deacon nominee tonight. And then Janet McBride and her husband Michael. And uh, they are just incredibly gifted and talented individuals up here, involved in Timberline in many, many different ways. And uh, they have excited to just walk through this process and just trust the Lord in it and being willing to serve in any way they can. So if we can, if we can just stand to our feet right now, I just want to be able to pray for them, uh, pray for our church and our deacon team, and as we go before the Lord, let's pray as we cover over these, these nominees. Heavenly Father, thank you for a night like this where we can come before you, worship you, break bread drink the cup together as people. We're grateful for that. And so, Lord, tonight, as we bring these candidates before you, Lord, we trust the process. They are all very humble and excited to be a part of this process. And we trust you, Lord. So thank you for them. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for their leadership. Thank you for their volunteerism. Thank you for their families. Thank you for their commitment to Timberline Church. But above all of those things, Lord, I just personally want to say thank you for their commitment to you, their love for you, God, because it shows. So we cover them tonight with this process, the business meeting on Sunday night, and we look forward to seeing what you have in mind, in Jesus' name, amen. Can we all say amen and just thank them for being a part of this process, thank you very much. And you can go ahead and have a seat as they're going down to their seat, and ushers, if you'll go ahead and come forward, this is our time tonight where we have our regular tithes and offerings, and if you're a first-time guest with us here at Timberline, please just let the offering plate pass you by. But uh, ushers, during the video, you can go ahead and pass the plates as we continue to jump into the C.S. Lewis series. Let's uh, watch this video on the screen, and then Pastor Brent will be here.
1: Lewis offers a lot. First of all, Lewis puts forward the idea that you don't have to be afraid of the truth. He's a great example of the way in which uh, a profound Christian faith and a profound commitment to learning Uh, can be combined, and can be not only reconciled,
0: but can uh, fruitfully influence one another.
1: C.S. Lewis is one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, and his impact is most remembered for his work in terms of his ability to articulate mere Christianity. He was deeply Christian, and yet he saw uh, that that made him larger, not smaller and it made him more engaged with the culture around him, not less engaged. He also was a man who worked in the imagination. He was an imaginative,
0: creative force. I think that the strength of C.S. Lewis's writings have been to acquaint us through the metaphor of art with the power and the importance of the spirit dwelling in our own lives. He was unapologetic about who he was as a person of faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, he is willing to ask the big questions. Lewis is like a tremendous breath of fresh air, precisely because of his openness. Now, when you read him, you never get the feeling that, well, this guy's just pushing his little thing.
1: You know, when you read Lewis, you go like that. <laughs> when you understand what he's saying, you, you, you literally have a, it goes goose pimples. That's why I called my book, A Shiver of Wonder. That's what I experience, and I'm not the only one. Millions of people get that shiver of wonder when they read Lewis. He's special. Well, good evening. Welcome, welcome back to our series. We are in week two of a three-week series looking at both the life and the the writings of maybe one of the most influential Christian writers of the 20th century, Clive Staples Lewis, who his friends, as we talked about last week, affectionately called him Jack. Uh, He actually named himself that. That was kind of this little name as a three-year-old boy, we were saying. He kind of gave him this name, and he lived his whole life as this guy who was always giving people nicknames. And... um, uh, Jack is this guy who has had such an impact both on my life as well as I know many of yours. It was fun last week afterwards just to hear from some of you who said, man, I came to, I came to faith in Christ as a result of reading Lewis. I think of guys like, like, like Charles Coulson who was Nixon's right-hand man and found Christ in prison and it was because of the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and countless others who would say Lewis has played such a significant part in coming to christ and helping them wrestle through how do i how do i think well how do i think biblically christianly and engage in my world as we've said before in here in a a non-triumphalistic way where we're hitting people over the head with bibles but also a non-assimilating way how do i be a change agent and and lewis is one of these guys who i think is just uh so far in the past 50 some years he keeps being relevant and um I think that's because he's he keeps being biblical i think that's why he's relevant and so um you know last week we kind of looked at how how he came to christ we looked at this idea that that lewis experienced ever since a young boy this sort of golden thread that he that he just kept following through life and this golden thread was this idea of um he gave it this german word we talked about last week sign souped it's this idea of like longing of, uh, of joy, but kind of a painful joy. Like you you want something and you grasp for it and you kind of get it, but you were kind of going for more behind it. And he said, "It's like everything I wanted in life, even when I got it, it's like there was something more, something else." And I realized that if I had a desire that was never met in this world, maybe I was meant for another world. And so this was this golden thread that he kept following and it led him to Christ, and we looked at that that whole idea. Next week, we're gonna look at, you know, maybe his most popular kind of writings where a lot of us ha- have encountered Lewis, and that's through the Chronicles of Narnia. This idea of, of smuggled theology, as is, as is spoken of, the idea that, that he retold the gospel story to a culture that was kind of, uh, they had inoculated themselves to it. And so he retold it, he, he, he snuck into their mind, past all their cultural defenses, and they heard the gospel story again and so we'll look at that whole idea of uh, Narnia and th- that world today tonight what I want us to do is explore something that that may be the most controversial teaching both when when, when Lewis uh, was alive possibly even now um, in his teachings and that is that he believed in a in a actual literal heaven and hell and he comes from air, we'll talk a little bit about this, but why, why that was so dramatic. And let me kind of explain a little bit of what I mean by that. Lewis comes from a period, we'll, we'll kind of call it modernism. Um, Lewis comes from a, a time period which, now as you think about kind of the history of, uh, of thought and all that sort of thing, everything that you know comes before this, guess what we call it? It's a really big word. Pre-modern, yeah, um, And everything that comes after it is... Oh, you guys are geniuses. Postmodern. And so, and so, you know, we throw these words around a lot. We talk about postmodernism and all this stuff, but, but here's basically the idea. And there's a lot more, but I just want to talk about one kind of slice of it. For the vast majority of world history and the vast majority of cultures, the idea was that if you wanted to know something, if you wanted wisdom, if you wanted knowledge, what you would do is you would, you would get a, the accumulation of all the wisdom of your culture. You would go to the wise people. You would go to authority sources. And you would say, what have you learned about life? What have you learned about relationships? What have you learned about truth, about purpose and meaning? And, and you would accumulate knowledge. And that's, that's how you came to be a wise person. Okay? This is the ancient sources. Ever wondered why you read the book of Proverbs? so often it starts up by saying my son listen to my teachings because it's this pre-modern ancient culture which has been the vast majority of, of approach in all of human history well something really interesting happened in 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 what we call modernism this is this is this idea you know we've got guys like like darwin and freud nietzsche guys who come along who start really questioning stuff and the big idea of it is that it's not just like they, they forget the past, they despise the past. You know, Nietzsche says things like, if someone's trying to tell you something's true, it's a power play. They're just trying to work you over. It. They're trying to get you to believe something because it benefits them. It's all about people trying to, kind of, you know, it's all power moves sort of thing. And so if, if there were kind of a bumper sticker, and a lot of you guys have seen, this, have you seen this bumper sticker that says, question what? Authority right? Question authority. That's the bumper sticker of modernism, because it's saying you can't believe it. it if you want to come to true knowledge, the only way you can know anything is by empirical observation, something you see, taste, touch, smell, you know, that sort of stuff, or something that just by your own mind, not don't use the Bible, don't use authority, don't use revelation, nothing else, from your own unguided mind, if you can't know something through those two methods, it doesn't exist. It's not around. And so Lewis is born in this modern period. Well, now think about this for a second. If you're coming from a modernist perspective, you begin with the assumption, what kind of things don't exist if you can't see, taste, touch, smell, and you just, if you can't like reason about it, just you know, come to it without any sort of exterior information. How about miracles? Are they gonna exist? No way. What about the existence of the immaterial soul? No, are you kidding? You can't you can't test that. You can't taste that. All these sorts of things. Satan. Even things like what about love? What about ideas, truth, beauty, all these things came into question and so in in postmodernism, this is kind of the big idea today is and we're still kind of in between these two worlds. These two worlds are both here, but postmodernism is this idea that it sort of gives up on it and says, "Well, we can't know. We can't know anything. We can't know any truth about Anything, except unless it's maybe super, super empirical. Um, but this is this idea that Lewis, Lewis came, and what, what I love about Lewis, and why he's still, I think, so popular, is Lewis was brave enough and radical enough. Like, we have to understand, the culture was hugely this way. You know, he's in Oxford. The academic world is, at, all of them go in this direction. And he was radical enough to be like a stone in a river. And he saw right through this baloney. And he's like, wait a minute. Basically, modernism says old is bad, new is good, and so an idea—if it's an old idea—you know—we say things that like, you know we're patronizing. Oh, that's you know that's quaint. Well, that that's a medieval idea, right? That's a primitive idea. And, and and Lewis had this great phrase. I love this. He said that's called chronological snobbery. Isn't that a great phrase? Chronological snobbery. If it's old, it's bad. If it's if it's new, it's good. He goes, "Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous." And so, you know, he had these really kind of cute ways of talking, but he'd say, okay, so if you want to know what time it is, do you look at a clock or do you look at an argument? And I go, what are you talking about? Well, wh- which one? And I go, well, a clock. Okay. Well, then what do you use an argument for if it's not to tell the time? Well, I you use it to figure out if something's true or false. And he goes, okay. But how come you're using the clock to figure out if something's true? Because you're using words like pre-modern, uh, you know, ancient, old. And you're saying, well, we don't believe that because it's old. He goes, those are calendar words. You don't tell if something's true by a clock or a calendar, do you? You use it by argument. So he he saw through the baloney of the culture, and and he brought people back to this place of clear-headed thinking as a follower of Jesus. So again, as you can imagine, his idea of, of, of heaven and hell, which in the modern era, man, those were one of the first ones to go, because it, it assumes things like, like judgment, and boy, that's really narrow-minded, and and you know that's arrogant because who you know, things like who are you to say, right? And and it's just sort of it's this well that's that's cute, that's an antiquated way of thinking, um, and this isn't just out in the world. The church was heavily influenced by modernism, and many people gave up on things like the resurrection because they gave up. On miracles but but two of Lewis's most famous books um, one is the screw tape letters and if you picked up if you picked up a bolts on your way in each um, each week that kind of relates to where we're going I wanted to give just like one or two actually three I guess um, resources of read these books they're really really good they're by Lewis and on the bottom there um, the weight of glory is like maybe the best sermon on heaven, which is what we're going to talk about kind of toward the end here that I've, you know, that I've ever heard. But he's got two books, The Great Divorce and The screw Tape Letters, and I give you a little bit of a kind of annotation as to what each one of those are about. But at the heart of both of these best-selling books is the idea that there is a real hell. And he explores kind of the nature of hell, the nature of choice, how it is that, that this happens. Even though, you know, people would say, well, surely that's, that's something that enlightened people wouldn't believe in. But again, as I said, Lewis was bold enough, daring enough to be orthodox. That was, that was crazy in his day. He was absolutely bold enough um, to, um, again, see through a lot of, and that's why he's still changing people's lives today. And he used humor to do it. That's what I love about Lewis. Listen to this, listen to this great statement. One time he was talking about the idea of, we have a real enemy of our soul, the devil. And he said, now, I know some of you will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day, that's that, that's that chronological snobbery, to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Lewis says, well, what the time of day has to do with it, I don't know, and I'm not particular about the hoofs and the horns. But in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. <laughs> I love that idea. You know, he kind of pushed aside some of the yeah, obstacles to it and uh, addressed a lot of the issues. So let, let's get to Lewis's, um, last, re- last week I, I uh, introduced the word apologetic, right? Apologetic means to argue for something. Let's, let's look at Lewis's apology for hell. And I don't mean saying I'm sorry, I'm saying it in this classical sense, his argument for it, his reasoning why there has to be hell, why it's both biblical and even necessary, why it's rational, as we even think about kind of the psychology of pursuing God, pursuing the good, Loving, being in relationship and that sort of thing. So as we, th- as we think about the topic of hell, um, at, at the heart of Lewis's argument for a real, actual hell is the idea that hell, Lewis said, is always something that we choose. Um, and he said, no, no one who really desires and seeks heaven will miss it. Anyone who really wants heaven and seeks it We'll find it. And he said, I remember Jesus saying something about those who seek, find. But hell is something that we choose in our lives. And for Lewis, hell isn't so much a pit that, that we are thrown into, he says. It's, it's more like a swamp that, that we kind of slowly edge and slide ourselves into. One, one tiny, incremental, itty-bitty decision, thought at a moment. At a time, and the accumulation of that is this sliding into this place of of self-absorption, what the Bible calls sin, being unplugged from God. And each time we choose, Lewis would say, ourselves, or we choose sin over over God and over others. Um, each time, each time we close off one of the doors inside of our heart. Like, you know, if you think of your think of your heart like a like a mansion. And there's all these doors in all these rooms. And, and Christ comes walking through the mansion of your home. And he says, I want in that door. I want to, I want to turn the light on. And there's probably a lot of stuff I'm going to have to clean out. I want in that door. I want in that room. And he says, it's like the idea that every time he walks down the hall, and I close another door, and I close another door, and I close another door. And there's hundreds of doors throughout my life that I'm opening or closing. But each time as I close the door, I'm closing myself off to the life-giving and revealing presence of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends. And as a result of that, I I surrender a little bit of what it means to be a castle, what it means to be human, we would say. I'm a little spark of what it means to be human, made in the image of God, I'm kind of relinquishing, I'm letting go, and I'm literally dehumanizing myself. In this book, The Great Divorce, the one that's on the back of your um, the back of your bulletin there, if you've ever read it, it's kind of it starts out really weird. It's like these all these people on this bus, and it's this omnibus, and they kind of take this fantastical, almost kind of magical bus ride from hell up to heaven, and, and, and you kind of learn at the end a little secret as to kind of really what's going on there, but. Um, <clears throat> When they get there, they stop and they kind of walk out of the bus, and, and they're like, "Heaven's just kind of beyond. It's the mountains, and they're in this kind of flat, flat ground. And it's this imaginary picture. Lewis was great as, as, you know, using picture and imagination. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, and basically what he's doing is he's trying to prove why people actually would choose hell. Because see, the modernists would say, "Well, no one's, no one's, that's stupid. No one's going to choose hell. That's ridiculous." And Lewis says, "Oh no, no, no! It happens. We do it all the time." And so he uses this book to say, "Here's how." people actually choose hell and so and so people get off the bus the people from hell well then these these beings come out these are the ones in heaven and they come toward them and as they come toward them they kind of match up with them one they're sort of like assigned to a person what their job is to try to compel them to to let go of their sin let go of their pride and come into heaven come be with god with me and virtually all of them each one you see, it's, it's, it's almost like a case study. Each one goes, ah, n- you know, no for various reasons, not just no, I don't want to, but you see the reasoning behind their thinking. Um, and so Lewis you know, kind of approaches the whole thing as this case study, which is really interesting. And he shows people why uh, people willfully choose hell. And one of the saddest cases in it, I'll just kind of give you one example here, there's, there's a mother who has been taken on the bus to heaven to, to see her son, he has gone to, to heaven. And upon arrival, she insists upon seeing her son. She said, where is he? I haven't seen him. I want to I see him. And um, she's told that she must first learn to desire God before she can see her son, before she can kind of have him back in her presence. And what you quickly realize is that um, her love for her son is her God. And you realize that because she won't love uh, God as her her highest good, her love for her son, uh, it kind of devolves. You see what it really is. It's not this true selfless love. It's this kind of smothering, manipulative, um, grasping kind of love. And what she says is, you know what? Mother love is the best thing out there. And if God would get in the way of that, well, he's not God. He's a demon. And so if God's going to get in the way of my love for my son, then God's got to go. And she's ready to drag her son back into hell with her so she can take care of him. And increasingly, one great observation that that Lewis makes about this whole idea of good things like mother love, I mean, mother love's a great thing. You know, that's a wonderful thing. But but, but Lewis recognizes that... um, as you think about the human heart and how idolatry happens, like how we find things that, that are good things, really good things, but, but we put them kind of at an ultimate thing, he says the better the thing, the more likely it is to become a substitute for God. You know, no one's going to think, oh, you know, life's all about just drugs, or life is all about, you know, just you know, these crummy things. It's the good things. It's patriotism, he would say. It's, it's mother love. It's religion. It's some of the best things that will be the best substitutes for the real God. He's got this, he's got this great line where he says, brass is mistaken for gold more easily than clay is. It's the brass things in life. It's the good things. It's the beautiful things that you and I will be more tempted to to kind of put as our, our ultimate, to become idols in our lives. And so here's here's kind of the key idea that I want us to camp on as we think about this idea of how temptation and the mind and the soul works in heaven and hell, Lewis kind of has this idea that um, truth, goodness, and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty are the three things in life that We want I mean everything everything that you want gets Put underneath one of these categories in life And when we have truth and goodness and beauty right when I can know truth And and when I can enjoy beauty and 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 have goodness. I'm happy We are happy when we have truth goodness and beauty in our life Um, and see here's here's the here's the thing sin Sin would say, well, God's withholding them from you. Um, God, God kind of has them in his back pocket, and he just won't give them to you. Like, he wants you to do tricks for him. You know? But he just won't, he's not kind enough to just give them to you. Do you remember back in Genesis 3? Do you remember what the serpent says to Eve when you know, he's tempting her to kind of seek these things on your own? She says, well, you know, if I do, I'll, you know, I'll die. And he goes, you won't die. See, God knows. If you get him, you'll be like him. You'll have what he had, you'll have it in your back pocket. He's withholding stuff from you. That's why he doesn't want you to have it. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. But see, God says, no, 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 no. It's that's on its head. It's actually much simpler than that. Jesus says, I am truth. I am goodness. I am beauty. In fact, do you remember a time that Jesus said something almost exactly like that? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, "No, no one comes to the Father. In Jewish understanding of that, that was ultimate happiness. No one gets to the final goal except through me. Now, see we as modernists hear that we go, see, I don't like that. that. That's so narrow. That's so exclusive. It's sort of saying like my way or the highway, right? You got to do things the way I want or just tough luck, you know? Um, but he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I am, he says, I am, the, he doesn't say I have the way. I'll, I'll, I'll show you the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's saying I am truth, goodness, and beauty. I don't have them in my back pocket to give you. I can't separate them from myself. To give you them, I have to give you myself. For you to have truth, goodness, and beauty, everything you want, you have to embrace me because those things are me. They're not different from me, if that makes sense. And so Lewis keeps saying that all of, y- all of your efforts in life to find, I mean, like, deep, profound happiness, that, that, that that's long lasting um apart from god you'll be frustrated it has to end in frustration because god is truth goodness and beauty so insofar as you long for those things and you can't not because you're made for them, you're like hardwired for them. insofar as you long for them apart from a relationship with god it'll always be frustrating every single moment and that's that's where he's getting at well that's what hell is hell is wanting those things but, but not having them. Listen to how Lewis puts it here. Um, this is from uh, uh, The Problem of Pain. He writes these words. This is the conclusion to the matter. God gives what he has, not what he has not. He gives the happiness that is, not the happiness that is not. And then he gives kind of three options. Here are your three options. You can either be God. Well, none of us can do that. You can be like God and share in his goodness and creaturely response, that's image of God, or you can be miserable. These are the only three alternatives. (laughs) God, image of God, or absolutely miserable. He goes on to say, listen to this, if we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe can grow, then we will starve eternally wow that's that's sobering if we do not learn to eat the only food as an engine to run on the only gas that the universe grows which is god himself we will starve eternally see i think this is in large part when jesus speaks of when scripture speaks of hell the gnashing of teeth okay it's 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 this idea of resentment bitterness it's it's not repentance it's, I want truth, goodness, and beauty, but I don't want God. And I think that's part of the insanity. I want truth, goodness, and beauty, beauty, but I don't recognize those are him. So I'm saying, yes, no, get, come here, no, get away. I, it's this. Constantly, that's what's going on in hell. Wanting truth, goodness, and beauty, refusing God. Um, in, in his autobiography, uh, Lewis writes in, in uh, it's called Surprised by Joy. We talked a little bit about that last week. He reflected a little bit just like on his life, you know, pre-Christian life, and he said, you know, as I think back to like where I was, what was going on in my thinking, how how I approached life and what my thought process was, um, he writes this, I had always wanted, he said, above all things, not to be interfered with. He said, if I could sum up my life, I wanted more than anything else in the whole stinking world was to just be left alone. I didn't want anyone to interfere with my life, with my pursuit of happiness. And yet Lewis realizes that God is the great interferer. And that's why he said he, he recoiled against the idea of God. Because he knew, once he realized if this whole God thing is true, God demands everything. He's going to mess with everything in my life. He's going to want in every stinking door of the castle... He's going to want every single area, and he won't allow even the smallest little area for me to kind of put a fence around and say, mine. <laughs> and in one place, he says, there's not one square inch of all of creation that God does not yell over, mine. <laughs> not one square inch. And, and Lewis said, that includes one square inch of me, and I just want at least one square. I want something that's mine. And he goes, well, that's sin, right? Because I think if I have it, I'll be happy. I'll have happiness, which comes from truth, goodness, and beauty. But it's mine, and it's not God's. And he realized this is insanity. <laughs> so this is the tragedy of hell. But it is also the honor w- which God pays free creatures. When God bestowed free will, freedom, choice, which God does that, God's a lover, he, he, he woos, he didn't create robots, he wants relationship. And so he, when he creates freedom in human creatures, if, if in the end, the end of the day of all of our million tiny little decisions throughout our life, if in all of those we kind of say, I want to be left alone. I want, I want to be not interfered with. If we choose to um, ourselves as kind of our, our own idols rather than him, this is the scariest thing in the world. He leaves us alone. And, and, and he leaves us to this uh, self-enslaving thing we call self-freedom. You remember this time that Jesus was talking to some of his contemporaries, and he's, he's talking to them, he says, it's the sick who need a doctor, and, and he's basically trying to get people to, you know, see, where are you at? Do you think you need God, or are you self-sufficient? Is it, is it God's, or is it kind of no mine, that, you know, that square inch of, you know, that's mine. And he has some people who just go, no, it's, you know, it's mine sort of thing, and he says, I haven't come for you. Come for the sick and i think that's one of the scariest things i've ever heard jesus say to actually hear jesus say i haven't come for you because see, he can't come for the one who says i don't want you i i, I want to be left alone because he has bestowed this radical thing called freedom on us and he honors that and he says i i will not commit celestial rape i will not force you i want you i love you more than anything else and in me resides all truth, goodness, and, beauties, and their beauty, and therefore your happiness. But he, he woos us and not anything else. Finally, Lewis also suggests that, this is kind of interesting, that the walls of hell are a necessary, I mean, walls, he's speaking kind of figuratively, the walls of hell are, are, are meaning the idea that it's confined. You know, why, why is it that those who really choose this life have to, have to be confined in some way and apart from creation itself? Um, and he says, it's, it's as much a, a tourniquet as a boundary. Um, sin is like a cancer that, that, that has to be contained or else it spreads to all of creation. And so Lewis warns against, he says, you know, there's this really popular idea out there, you guys, and, and it's kind of this idea that, well, um, until everyone's happy, no one can be happy, right? It sounds really good, like, well, you know, that, that's not okay. We need, you know, until everyone is happy and, and, and that sort of thing, no, no one will be. Well, if you're a parent and you've had, have you, I've had this sort of thing happen with my kids where, you know, we go, we're going to the mall or we're going to go to a park or something, and there's one kid who does not want to go, Right? And so he's going to make, you know, he's going to be miserable, and he's going to be sure that all the rest of us are miserable too, right? And, and so he's just, he's mad, he's going to be sure, you know, no one's going to have fun because he's not having fun. It's like the kid who holds his breath, right? Until you give me what I want, you know, hold their breath, and it's blackmail, right? No one's going to be happy until I get what I want because I'm not happy. And Lewis makes a point that he says, um, in, in heaven, that kind of blackmail power is denied, Hell removes that ability to say, "If everyone's not happy, no one's happy. If anyone's choosing misery, well then everyone's just going to have to be sad about it." And he says, "That, that removes it, because that's a cancer to joy. It's a cancer to truth and goodness and beauty. He says, "And I will not have that, because I am a loving God." So what about heaven? We, I, I, I was saying to him, um, I was saying to Kristen my wife, and you know, we were talking, I said, you yeah, kind of what I'm talking on, and, and she goes, that's kind of a serious, you're talking on hell for like, you know, half hour, it's kind of a serious subject, and I said, okay, well, I'll end on heaven, you know, it'll be a little, a little bit up, so let's turn from hell to heaven, let's turn from misery to joy, and, and, and kind of end on a, end on a good note. If you guys were here for the previous series that we did, we, uh, we did this series called Being Human, and, um, if you remember, the, our, our, our kind of weekly uh, illustration was we had a we had this beautiful portrait that um, a local artist Dave Clack had had taken and it's this gorgeous picture of the San Juan Mountains and it's this expensive beautiful picture and, and uh, each week we we defaced it you know we we spray painted we cut it we burned it we did all this stuff to to today it's horror and and um, it was all for this idea that 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 sin defaces the beauty that's there. Sin, sin removes it. It's like, it's like a castle that's, that's broken down. You can't live in it. You still see beauty. It's a castle. That's awesome. But you can't live in it. It's not, it's not livable. And um, <clears throat> this, this is the idea that if, if hell is the closing up of things, if, if, if hell diminishes things, if, if hell is the shrinking of human personality, if, if hell defaces and dehumanizes sin by that I mean, then then heaven heaven is the blossoming of what it means to be human. We talked about that a little. It's, it's, the, it's the realization or the consummation of what it means. It's reaching our deepest longings, the things that, that we have always longed for. And see, I this, you guys, is so important for us as the church. Contrary to popular opinion out in the world, and, and I hear this all the time, I know you hear it as well, it is contrary to that, it is Christ. Who would set us free? It is Christ who would give us like life to the full. And it is Satan who would deface and devour personality. There's, there's this great line in um, the book Screwtape Letters. And, and if you can read the back there, it's this interchange where there's this senior demon writing to this younger demon all about the art of temptation. Here's, here's how you tempt and here's what you do. And, um, and there's this great line. So the senior demon... He's, he's talking about their intentions, Satan's intentions versus God's. And uh, Lewis has, has him say this. He says, we, the, you know, the demons, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. I love that. Satan wants cattle who can finally become food. He says, he, the, he calls him the enemy, God. He wants servants who can finally become sons. See, one of Lewis's favorite Bible verses of all time was that, that thing that Jesus said about, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And it'll be bigger than you ever had it all by yourself. See, Lewis was not some puritanical preacher who was saying, you know what, you just got, you got to mortify your desires. You got to stop desiring stuff. You got to kill all that and, and be this kind of, you know, tie your laces real tight on your shoes and, and, and just be real uptight about everything and stop, stop desiring um it's it's the exact opposite one of one of the coolest stories i wish i had time i would read it for you but i don't in um uh the great divorce one of these other people that they meet is is, is this guy and he's kind of limping along and he's got this little red lizard on his shoulder and this 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 angel comes up to him again wooing him into heaven and, and he says and and the lizard's just chattering in his ear and the lizard's whatever the sin you want it to be you know and 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 it's Chad, you know, you know, talking to him, and and he says, and the angel says, "Do you want me to kill that?" And he goes, "Well, yeah, maybe." Well, then he gets and he has these burning hot hands, and he gets close. He goes, "Ah, that's that's hot." And he goes, "Well, you know what? He'll be quiet. I promise. He'll he won't be as loud. He'll I can control him better." And he goes, "Do you want me to kill?" It? And he goes, "I, you know, don't be too extreme. I just I know he's gotten out of control sometimes, but he will be better and all." That. And he's, he he's rationalizing. He's okay, you know, maybe later. I'm just I'm not feeling well today. I'll go back. You know, maybe tomorrow I'll do it. And he says, "There's no tomorrow. It's now." And he, and he keeps, you know, saying, come on, you got to do this. And, and at one point, this little lizard starts saying, he'll do it. Don't let him do it. He can kill me. He says, you won't be able to live without me. You can't do life without me. You need me to be full of yourself. And so finally, he goes, okay, do it. And he starts to do it, and, and he's burning him. And he goes, I thought you said this wasn't going to kill me. And he says, I, I said it wouldn't hurt, but or, or I said it was not going to kill you, but it's going to hurt. So he takes this thing, and he throws it down on the ground. And, and the man starts kind of changing into, you know, this whole more, more, more full being. And, and Lewis, who's kind of standing there watching all this in, in this imaginary tale, he, says he sees this red lizard just writhing, and he thinks, okay, he's going to die because he said he'd kill him. Well, he says, it's almost like it's not working. Like, did the operation not work because it's actually getting bigger? And he's watching this thing, and it's writhing around, and this little tail on the lizard starts growing hair, and it starts growing big, and, and, it's, and it's growing huge, and as he watches it, he says, all this, this shimmering muscle and all this stuff, well, it turns into this white stallion with this gold mane and gold tail. He says, it jumps up, and it's just standing there. And it, as it hits its hoofs on the ground, it says, the whole, you can feel like the world shake. And the man grabs it, and they breathe into each other's nose, and he jumps on it, and they ride off. And it's this picture of when you give God back what you think is like you can't live without, and it's something that's like breaking you, he says, I can give it back to you so much more. You know, things like lust, the reason lust can't make it in heaven Is not because lust is too strong; it's because it's too weak. There's this God love thing that is—that's like a stallion compared to it, way, way better than than the tiny little thing that you think, man, I cannot live without that in my life. I couldn't go on without it. Lewis says this in *The Weight of Glory*. He said, "It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition." When infinite joy is offered us. And he says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. He says, Here, here's my challenge for you guys tonight. One is, are you far too easily pleased in your life? Are you? Are you living with things in your life that you kind of know, yeah, you know, it shouldn't be there. You know, I'll keep it under better control. It's sort of that area. It's that door that I'm not letting Christ really in. It's, it's something which, you know, I just, honestly, I don't even know if I could live without. I mean, the thought, I don't go there, so I don't even know if I can. But I just, it's the one area that I put a fence around and I put a sign in it that says mine. And I'm not really letting him take it over because I fear I won't be able to live fully. with I can't imagine living fully without it. Do you view Christ as someone who is kind of taking away life or someone who can give you life to the full? Remember he said that? He said, the enemy comes to steal, to kill, destroy. us says, but I've come that you would have a life and like robustly bigger than you can imagine. And yet the enemy's lie every time is that he's, he, he, he's holding out on you. And then the second challenge that I want to make to you is if this is true, if it's true that, that, that every single one of us is this being which is going to be made into this amazing creature, reflecting the image of God more fully than we ever have, if, if I'm going to be, you know, Lewis uses the word glory, I'm going to be in this state of awesomeness, this state of glory, that, that, that's massive, but not just me, the person next to me. Think of someone in your life who's a little difficult. And Lewis says, do you feel the weight of their glory? Let me, let me end with this um, short little statement here by Lewis. Um, he writes this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, all day long, in some degree or another, we are helping each other on one or other of these two destinations. He's talking about life with God or life without God. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection power to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. And I love this line. Listen to this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked Lewis says, to a mere mortal. you ever thought about that? Every single human being is destined to be an immortal creature. And he goes on to say this. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, those are all mortal. They're going to they're gonna burn. They're going to go away. And their life to ours is like the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, exploit. He says, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Isn't that crazy? You've never talked to a mere mortal. The person you're married to, um, the person that you go to work with and sits next to you, uh, the person that, that is a locker partner to you, the person that, that's, that's kind of a difficult person you really struggle with, it's a being which if you saw in their eternal state, it would be a being, I mean, if you were to see them right now, and, and they were with God, they would be a being, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Remember how people responded to angels in the Bible? They worshiped. It says, our glory is going to be beyond that. Or they're a creature which if you saw them from, their separated from God's state, it would be a horror which you've never seen in your worst nightmare. And every day, the phone calls you make, the emails you send, the conversations you have, the encouragements you give, the cursing that you give, whatever it might be, pushes them this direction. Everlasting splendors or this direction, immortal horrors? And Lewis says, God has placed you in their life to push them toward everlasting splendor, toward this being. And you might not be able to see how it could happen. You might look at them, you go, man, they're already kind of, a, they're, they're, a, they're close to a horror over here already. But God can do it. And Lewis reminds us of that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I I am so grateful, Lord, for, for the words of Lewis because he reflects so much on the person of Jesus and Scripture that he brings them out to us. And he reminds us of this reality that we are beings made in the image of God, called upward, called into a life with you. That we would share, as it says in Scripture, share in the nature of God that, that, that we're going to have somehow your divine life infused into us in a way that, that, that makes us bigger than we've ever been, that completes our humanity, and we will live forever with you, and that that's a possibility. And God, the thought of that, that door that we have been reaching for our whole life at the end, actually opening the door and walking through to glory, the experience of that and what that will be and how how sin and temptation will just fall off us like old clothes that's just beyond our imagination god so many of us we we struggle with with those constant temptations those sins those little red lizards things that we just cannot imagine giving up god would you give us a vision of that stallion of that if we give up to you You can give us so much more. You can perfect it and give it back to us, and we can own it and enjoy it more than we ever could. And Father, I pray that you would also work on every single one of us. We all rub shoulders with people every single day to whom we forget, we don't feel the weight of their glory as everlasting creatures. God, we don't even think about it. We're jerks to them. We snub them. We treat them like junk so often. Sometimes people closest to us. And God, when we realize what that does is push them in one direction or another, God, we, we just repent of that first of all. We confess that to you. And we ask for your empowerment that tomorrow, even tonight, that as we walk back into relationship with them, God, may we be empowered by your spirit. Just say, God, help me do this. Help me feel the weight of their glory on my back. And I, and I, I can only handle the weight of that if I have a humble, if I'm a humble person but it will break the back of the prideful. So make us humble, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for speaking through great men like C.S. Lewis. Thank you for speaking into our lives. Thank you for that, that your word is eternally relevant, God. We love you so much. We pray this in the strong, the matchless name of our king to whom we will one day give our, our whole lives to and he will give them back better than we've ever had him. guys thank you so much for being here our prayer team is going to be up front if you would like prayer we'd consider an honor to be able to pray with you we've got snacks in the back hey next week we're 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 talking about narnia and maybe better than anything else we've got pumpkin pie next week because because it's like our last week so i'm excited about that so love you guys so much thanks for being here thanks for being community get your kids bring them back and let's hang out and eat and stuff see you guys this weekend